the Bible. When readers take a verse or a passage out of its context, it's like kidnapping a citizen from his kingdom. The reader becomes a kidnapper, abusing a text, enslaving it, making it do the reader's bidding. Especially when reading the Bible, we don't want to be guilty of that. When we recognize God as the author, we acknowledge that he is the true king. He has placed these particular words in these particular contexts, and he doesn't give his readers a license to take these words into our own little kingdoms to make them mean and apply any old way we want. But as vivid and clear as I think that imagery is, we have a problem. What counts as context? And how does context really shape meaning? And how do we readers take proper account of the context of a particular passage of Scripture? Many times when a passage of Scripture has been understood to mean drastically different things to different readers, the main reason for the differences is the different ways readers connect the passage to its context. Consider a simple diagram to visualize what we're talking about here. We're looking at Genesis 6, 1 to 8 this morning a passage that has been understood to mean drastically different things to different readers. We could put our text in the center of a series of concentric circles. The next circle outside of that would be the unit of text this passage is in. So you can go ahead and put that second circle up there. Now there's some debate about this. As we looked at last week, I have come to see this passage as the conclusion of a unit that opened in chapter 5, verse 1. Some readers would see this passage as an introduction to the flood story, and that would change the meaning of the passage. Beyond the unit, then, the next contextual circle would be the book of Genesis as a whole. Then we would view all the books of Moses, the next circle out, the Pentateuch, as the next contextual circle. Then we could consider the whole Old Testament. And finally, we'd need to take account of the whole Bible as a unit, as a whole. All of this we could label as the literary context. And that must be the starting point for readers. Now, as we go outward away from the center, each level of context exercises less direct control over the meaning of the passage. That's a general principle, not a hard and fast rule. Sometimes the immediate context doesn't give us enough information to define particular words or phrases, for example. And so other places from the Old Testament need to be brought in where we can find some clarifying information to help us. With the Bible especially, we have to also consider the historical and cultural context It's hard to diagram this, but the historical and cultural context serve as a kind of colored overlay. They color everything about the passage, from the meaning of words and idioms, phrases that aren't to be taken literally, but communicate well-known ideas to the original hearers or readers. Most of the time, technical information from the historical or cultural background is not essential to understanding the meaning of a passage. And all God's people said, whew. (laughs) But for us to understand some, especially tricky passages, some information from the historical or cultural background is absolutely essential. This is the kind of information readily available to us in study Bibles or commentaries. 
how blessed we are that this kind of information is so readily available. When that information is ignored or unknown, most of us readers can still draw some true understanding and application from a passage. Now, why have I started here with a discussion of the context? Well, I've come to believe that certain contextual details are pivotal to properly understanding the meaning of Genesis 6, 1 to 8. It's not so much that students of Scripture often take this passage out of its context. Rather, it's that certain details that I now see as very important are typically left in the background and don't get their appropriate weight for readers. So I'm going to emphasize certain details in the passage in the context that usually don't get emphasized. And to balance that out, I'm going to refrain from answering some burning questions that typically dominate the study of this passage. I'm sure I will disappoint some of you on that point. If you've read ahead or are already familiar with this passage, you know that it features the mysterious sons of God marrying the daughters of man. There's also a mysterious reference to the mysterious Nephilim. And then we get the Lord's assessment of human nature an announcement of his coming judgment. The passage concludes with an exception, the man Noah, who will be spared the judgment, though that isn't quite spelled out yet. As I've emphasized, I believe we should read this as the conclusion of the passage we read last week, starting in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. When we see it this way, the structure of the passage actually mirrors what we saw in chapter 4. In chapter 4, we read the story of Cain murdering Abel, and then we read Cain's genealogy. But at the end of chapter 4, to conclude that entire section, Moses backed the story up, returning to Adam and Eve, giving birth to Seth. Seth certainly wasn't born only after seven generations of Cain's line were born. Rather, we should assume that Seth was born shortly after Cain was exiled away from the family. So then, the next unit of Genesis began in chapter 5. And again, Moses backed the story up to Adam and Eve having Seth. Then he sketched out a chronogenealogy, tracking Adam's lineage from Seth to Noah and Noah's three sons, including documenting the advance of time. Chapter 6 does not begin a new section. The phrase, these are the generations of, is Moses' cue to readers that he's beginning a new section of the narrative. And we'll see that phrase appear in chapter 6, verse 9. Thus, verses 1 through 8 serve as the conclusion of this unit. And as at the end of chapter 4, as I'll show you from the text momentarily, we are taken back in time yet again to Adam. Also, there is a pronounced emphasis on humanity in this passage. The Hebrew word Adam, Adam, appears eight times in these seven verses. Let's see how this unfolds. We'll begin with verses 1 to 5, where we'll see some echoes of the rebellion of humanity in Genesis 3, which featured Adam and Eve eating fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sure enough, good and evil are on display in this passage as well. Genesis 1, Genesis 6, 1 through 8. We'll start with verses 1 to 5. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then Yahweh said, 
My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Normally, verses 1 to 4 are treated independently, with verse 5 starting a new section, and that's not wrong. But Moses has drawn a very important contrast that we can see better if we hold all five verses together. And it is the contrast between good and evil. But before we get to that, notice the time marker for the section right there in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land. When was that? I'd say that takes us back to Adam and Eve. Humanity began to experience the blessing of God, the blessing pronounced back in chapter 1, where God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. They began to experience that blessing outside the garden under the shadow of the curse. In fact, the phrase face of the land or face of the ground recalls the curse on Cain, where the Lord drives him away from literally the face of the ground. Adding even more clarity that we're on the right track is the next phrase. Daughters were born to them. When were daughters born to men? Well, the genealogy in Genesis 5 specified that Adam had other sons and daughters. In fact, the word daughters did not appear before Genesis 5, but was found nine times in that genealogy. So with verse 1 of Genesis 6, Moses sets the stage for characterizing the entire period reflected in the genealogy of chapter 5. So Genesis 6, 1 to 8 is intended to characterize what life was like for humanity during the days and years leading up to the great flood of judgment. But what does Moses focus on? He introduces the sons of God in verse 2. There are several different options for pinning down who these guys are, but I have come to believe that it does not matter. The basic options boil down to the question, are these angelic beings or humans? And I don't think it matters. I also no longer believe that the New Testament helps us identify them at all. For those who have studied this or heard teaching about it, in fact, those of you in my care group heard me teach on it not all that long ago, And I have since changed my mind about most of it. And I reserve the right to change my mind again this afternoon, if I should see fit. But I no longer believe that either 2 Peter 2.4 or Jude 6 is talking about this passage at all. But I could be wrong. Thus, I lean towards seeing the sons of God as humans. But I don't think we need to be more specific than that, especially for the message of this passage Thus, I will continue to refer to the sons of God without defining who they were. More important is the way Moses describes what they have done. They saw that the daughters of man were attractive. More literally, they saw that the daughters of man were good. The word good can indeed refer to physical beauty, but it very rarely does. Instead, Moses surely intends us to recognize an echo of Eve's rebellion in the garden. Remember, she saw 
that the fruit of the knowing good and evil tree was good. And she took of it and she ate it. The sons of God saw that these women were good and they took any of these women they wanted to be their wives. As we unpacked Adam and Eve's rebellion, we highlighted how Moses seems to have portrayed what she has done as determining what is good and what is evil on our own, apart from what God had said. That is to say, Eve acted autonomously. Eve assessed the fruit of the tree that the Lord had forbidden and decided to believe the perspective of the serpent, rejecting the word of God, and she took it and ate it. Likewise, these sons of God assessed these women as good and decided for themselves, apart from the word of God, to take these women as wives. Moses gives us God's perspective on all humanity in verse 5. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Thus, we get a contrast between what the sons of God saw and what Yahweh saw. The Lord's assessment of all humanity was evil. That would include the daughters of man. So the sons of God assess these women as good, while the Lord indicates his assessment as evil. So we have a situation akin to the one reflected in Isaiah's day. The prophet Isaiah pronounced judgments of woe in Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So the purpose of this passage in Genesis 6 is to highlight the evil of humanity, all of humanity, male and female, daughters and sons. This will indeed set the stage for the great flood of judgment. But so far, there has been no mention of a flood. It would be helpful if we could try to read the passage as if we didn't know the rest of the story. And since this is the conclusion of the passage that started in Genesis 5, we're probably on the right track if we emphasize connections backward rather than trying to tie everything to things still to come. The passage does anticipate the next section, so it serves as a transitional passage in the end. But nevertheless, let's not jump to the flood before we should. In verse 3, there is a statement of a more immediate judgment, though it doesn't appear that the Lord said these words to anyone in particular. This is probably another occasion of the revelation of the Lord's internal dialogue. Three points remain unclear. First is the reference to the Lord's Spirit. Is it a reference to the Holy Spirit or the human spirit that God gives to people to enable them to live? Second, what does the verb mean? It's only used here in all of the Old Testament, and it is highly debatable. Third, does the reference to 120 years indicate a reduced lifespan for humanity, or is it a time of God's mercy prior to his unleashing of judgment? If the reference to spirit is the human spirit that Yahweh gives to people, then it seems like the word forever would be indicating that the human spirit wouldn't do something forever. The gist would seem to be that they won't live forever, but we already know that. Humanity's mortality has already been made abundantly clear, so I don't think that statement fits right here. But what is it that the Holy Spirit, then, won't do forever in or with humanity? Common suggestions for the meaning of the verb are reflected in the ESV, which has abide in, 
in the text and contend with in the footnote. Author Robert Gonzalez summarizes the situation really well when he writes, So the verse may refer either to the Spirit's work of convicting human hearts of sin or to the Spirit's presence among humanity, restraining sin and preventing eschatological judgment. In the end, both interpretations end up at roughly the same place. When the Spirit ceases what He is doing, whether contending or abiding among men, judgment and death will ensue. The clearest part of the passage is in the middle. The reason the Lord's Spirit is not going to continue doing whatever He had been doing with or in humanity is that humanity is flesh. What does this have to do with the actions described in verses 1 and 2? The sons of God assessing the daughters of man as good and then taking any of the women they chose as wives is an aspect of their fleshliness. If Moses uses the word flesh merely to refer to human nature, which seems likely, then perhaps Moses is merely pointing to the fact that the sons of God are acting out their fleshliness, their humanity. That probably applies to the daughters of man also. Thus, that humanity is flesh reflects the rebellious human nature that characterizes all of the descendants of Adam and Eve. The question of the 120 years is a tough one to decide. I've personally gone back and forth. The most obvious problem for the view that the Lord is announcing a reduced lifespan for people is that plenty of folks exceeded 120 years in the Bible. So those who see it this way suggest that the Lord implements the judgment gradually over time, and that is possible. But I'm persuaded that in anticipation of the flood, at a certain point, after humanity has multiplied exceedingly through the generations, he decides on a final period of time before he will bring judgment. So presumably, if we attend to the chronogenealogy of Genesis 5, sometime during the lifetime of Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah, but shortly before any of Noah's sons were born, the Lord made this determination. There's another biblical connection between God's extension of mercy because of humanity's fleshliness. Consider Psalm 78, 37 to 39, reflecting on Israel's experience with him in the wilderness. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. The psalm will go on to detail Israel's continued rebellion so that eventually the Lord did indeed pour out his wrath upon them. Judgment is not the last word for Israel, and judgment was not the last word for humanity in the days of Noah. Back in Genesis 6, verse 4 is parenthetical. If Moses is simply characterizing what life was like for humanity before the flood, for his Israelite audience, as they wandered in the wilderness, then he's adding a detail that would have resonated with his original hearers. Look at verse 4 again. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Notice the time marker again. 
when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. This verse does not identify the Nephilim as the children of the sons of God and the daughters of man, as is commonly taught. Moses says that all along the way, while the sons of God were marrying and producing offspring with the daughters of man, the Nephilim were around. So, if our observations from verse 1, connecting back with chapter 5, are on target, then throughout the generations between Adam and Noah, the Nephilim were around. What were the Nephilim? Well, against what is often repeated, the word does not, cannot mean fallen ones. The word would have to be spelled differently for it to mean that. There is some linguistic debate about whether the name is even related to the Hebrew verb meaning to fall. The Greek Bible translated the word giants, and that may be correct. In the end, it doesn't matter. The only other specific mention of Nephilim occurs in Numbers 13.33, where the unbelieving, rebellious spies of Israel reported that they had seen the Nephilim in Canaan, and they associated them with the descendants of Anak, who were indeed giants. So, when Moses is writing Genesis... We can assume that he's been teaching some of this material to the people wandering in as they've been wandering in the wilderness for a long time at this point, several years, and that wandering in the wilderness came after the episode in Numbers 13 where they claimed to see the Nephilim in the land of Canaan. So it seems likely that in Genesis 6, Moses adds this parenthetical remark indicating that the giants that the Israelites were so afraid of in Canaan were actually around in the earliest days of human history. And therefore, they too were under God's judgment and would be wiped out in the flood. But we're getting ahead of the story. Now, Nephilim is not probably a word that tracks an ethnicity. There are several tribes or groups of giants mentioned in the Old Testament. So there's no sense of wondering how they survived the flood, as though the Nephilim in Canaan were somehow descended from the Nephilim who lived before the flood. And as I pointed out a minute ago, Genesis 6-4 does not say that the Nephilim were the offspring of the sons of God, whether we conclude that they are angelic beings or humans. So where did the giants come from? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. I know that might be disappointing to some, but I think it's the only conclusion that we we can legitimately draw from the data we've been given. At the end of verse 4, probably, no, probably, the word these points back to the Nephilim. And Moses further describes them as mighty men or warriors. Thus, as the Nephilim in Canaan were perceived as terrifying giants by the spies, so these Nephilim were surely viewed as intimidating fighters. He adds one more phrase to describe them, which most versions translate as men of renown. The Christian Standard Bible has, they were the powerful men of old, the famous men. Literally, the last phrase is the men of the name, given the context. And with verse 5, right after this, emphasizing the wickedness of all humanity, rather than famous men, it might be better to think of infamous men. Moses seems to be highlighting the Nephilim as great villains, Now, Moses also says that these men were on the earth in those days and afterward. Some readers see this as the acknowledgement of the Nephilim in Canaan. 
who were on the earth afterward, meaning after the flood. However, thus far in Genesis 6, the flood has not yet been mentioned at all. So it would be hard for a first-time reader or listener of this story to understand Moses as referring to a time after the flood. It's a parenthetical comment, but it's still connected to the immediate context. Thus, we should probably expect that the afterword has something to do with the previous verse. If so, we could understand his comment to indicate that the Nephilim continued to exacerbate the wickedness of humanity even after the Lord had decreed his 120-year grace period. In fact, Moses might point to the Nephilim being on the earth after this divine decision in order to push against the thought that maybe, maybe humanity would repent during this 120-year period. Instead, he says, no, both before and after that divine decision to give humanity 120 years of days more, these infamous villains you've all heard stories about, like the giants you saw in the land that so terrified you Israelites, they did their worst during those days. And that leads into verse 5, Yahweh's assessment of humanity, which would include the sons of God and the Nephilim, it seems. In Genesis 4, we already saw an example of the kind of people living at this time in Lamech, the vengeful murderer. Here, Yahweh comments on the heart of humanity, not just their external actions. The wickedness of humanity was great on the earth. The word translated great is related to the verb in verse 1, multiply. It's not only babies that humanity has multiplied in the world. It's wickedness. As commentator John Golden Gay observes, there is hardly a stronger statement in the Bible about the evil of the human heart. The knowledge of good and evil has led to this low point. The heart in the Old Testament refers to the core of a person's being. It includes what we call the mind, logic and reasoning. It includes the will. And it also includes what we typically mean by the heart in our culture, the emotions and the feelings. The Lord points to a total corruption of human nature, a depravity that comes from the depths of humanity and bleeds out into violence, wickedness, and sin of all kinds. He characterizes the thoughts of the human heart as only evil continually. But it's not merely the thoughts, it's the intention of the thoughts. While it's probably right to see a reference to the twistedness of human motives, Moses here paints a vivid word picture It's the word for shaping what a potter does with clay to create something. In fact, it's the same word used back in Genesis 2-7 to describe the Lord's forming of Adam. Now, Adam's descendants form only evil continually with their minds. They use their creativity for evil. They call evil good in their discernment. Humanity, as the capstone of creation, was included in God's final assessment of his creation on day six of creation week. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Humanity has become very evil. These are the days of Noah. Jesus characterized the days of Noah by pointing to more everyday realities. In Matthew 24 and Luke 17, he simply indicated that people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And of course, Genesis 6, 2 refers to marrying and giving in marriage. But when we hold these two realities together, 
we see that the worst days of human history, at the beginning of human history, had the mixture of the mundane and the murderous. Jesus brought this up to compare how the days will be when he returns. And if you look around, especially if you widen your gaze around the globe, don't you see a ridiculous mixture of the mundane and the murderous? I'm grateful to not see giants roaming around and raving. And and in light of the certain presence of the mundane, it's probably right to recognize the Lord's assessment here as an occasion of rhetorical hyperbole, exaggeration that nevertheless paints a dark picture of humanity's depraved nature. At the same time, the days of Noah are a time of God's patience and mercy. This is what we see in verse 3. Peter speaks of of the time while Noah was building the ark, which surely overlaps this 120-year period. It doesn't say that it took Noah 120 years to build the ark. But Peter indicates that Noah's building the ark, however long it took, was the time when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. But in the face of such wickedness, how does God feel? We would expect Him to be angry, We would expect his wrath to boil, as we see later, against his own people and against all nations. But Moses points to other emotions in God. In fact, even the account of the flood itself, all the way through chapter 9, never mentions God's wrath. Do you have a place in your thinking about God for God's grief? Look at verses 6 and 7. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Regret, grief, sorry, Those are not words we expect to describe the God of the universe. The depravity of the human heart brings grief to God's heart. In verse 6, Moses is masterfully played with the words of Lamech's hope from chapter 5. The three key verbs in this verse translated here, regretted, made, and grieved, reflect three of Lamech's words in naming his son with hope in Genesis 5.29. He hoped his son Noah would bring relief from work and from painful toil. It's hard to bring this into English so that we can see the connection, but a Hebrew reader sees it immediately. Moses has spun this in such a way that we should see Lamech's hopes dashed as even his son is caught up in the depravity of the human heart. Moses' description of God's grief is like a carnival mirror held up to Lamech's hopes. Lamech's hopes die in God's grief. Rather than bring them relief, the Lord must destroy them. Or can he somehow do both? The word translated regret is a very complicated word translated by some ten different English words in different contexts. And it's the same word translated sorry in verse 7. I'm not going to take the time to expand this, take us too far away from our purpose this morning. But suffice it to say, the Lord isn't here second-guessing His work of creation. He's expressing a raw emotion 
somewhat parallel to our experience of regret and frustration. His grief, however, I do want to zoom in on. This word is related to the words for pain that God himself expressed in his punishments of Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3. I can do no better than author Robert Gonzalez, who describes this word as referring to deep emotional pain experienced by humans. It denotes the aroused feelings of brothers whose sister had just been raped. That's Dinah in Genesis 34. A loyal friend who has just learned that his father plans to murder his best friend. That's Jonathan with David in 1 Samuel 20. A father who laments the untimely death of a prodigal son. That's David over Absalom in 2 Samuel 19. And a wife whose husband has just deserted her. A metaphorical picture of God grieving over Israel in Isaiah 54, 6. Interestingly, the same terms are used to depict the pain Adam and Eve must suffer as a result of the curse. A pain including both emotional as well as physical dimensions. Hence, man's fall into sin brings pain to his Creator's heart as well as to his own. Or as another writer puts it simply, God is here described as a grieving and pained parent, distressed over what has happened to the human race. Thus, in verse 7, the Lord declares the punishment. Again, it doesn't appear that He's speaking to any human audience. Instead, this is His own divine internal dialogue revealed to Moses to record for His readers. Notice the reference to His creating and making in this verse. This echoes chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, putting a nice enclosure around this unit of Genesis. What He has created, what He has made, He now announces that He will unmake. As we'll see later on, Moses describes the flood in terms that we see it as the uncreation, the decreation of the world. Why he must wipe out most animal life with human life is not made explicit. One writer suggests a very practical reason. Perhaps the assumption is that the animal world needs humanity to look after it and exercise authority over it. Others have pointed to the general connection between humanity and the animal world, and still others have suggested that the animal world has been corrupted as well in some way. He's going to wipe them out, erase them from the planet. In order to eliminate the sin, he chooses to eliminate the sinners. In verse 8, Moses concludes the passage by returning to Noah. But of course, the focus is not on Noah, but on God. And his grace. Verse 8 says simply, But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Noah is a man. Noah is part of humanity. Noah is not pictured here as an exception to verse 5. Noah's heart was surely characterized by the same evil as everyone else on the planet. The word translated favor is the Old Testament word for Grace, And I so wish our English Bibles would translate it with the word grace more often so that we readers can get the connections. Baked into the meaning of this word is ill-desert. Some translations do us a great disservice here by rendering the word found as won or earned. No way. Noah found something that he certainly wasn't even looking for. To find favor or to find grace in someone's eyes 
is a common idiom in the ancient world, and it is very clear what it means. It means that someone looks at another person with an intention to extend grace, an intention to do good. Yahweh's eyes looked at Noah with grace. In a passage that highlights what Yahweh saw, Moses uses an idiom that refers to his eyes to communicate a parallel idea. Thus, the idiom can be reasonably brought into English as simply, but Noah received grace from Yahweh. Moses is playing with Noah's name already. He'll do so several times in the flood account. Moses would have written Noah's name originally with only two letters, the N and the H, in that order. The word for grace, he would have written with the same two letters, but reversed, H and then N. While many people pray that they might find favor in the eyes of Yahweh, only one other man besides Noah is actually said to have found such grace, Moses himself. But of course, many others have received grace from the Lord, including all of us. But the Old Testament only uses this phrase precisely of the individuals Noah and Moses. In every case, those who receive grace deserve judgment. Much will be made of Noah's righteousness in the next verse and in the rest of the flood account. But let us carefully heed how Moses speaks of his receiving grace before he was ever referred to as righteous. And the fact that verse 9 quite clearly begins a new section of Genesis and the fact that the reference to Noah's righteousness is separated from verse 9 by the section heading, these are the generations of Noah, separated from verse 8, that should prevent us from drawing the wrong conclusion that the Lord gave him grace because of his righteousness. Verse 8 is made up of five Hebrew words, and yet those five words carry the weight of the message of the entire unit, going back to chapter 5, verse 1. Last week we saw how Enoch was featured in the genealogy of chapter 5 in order to push Moses' point in the direction of showing how God brings life out of death. That's where the unit ends in chapter 6, verse 8 as well, but only with a tantalizing hint. With the Lord's announcement of His intention to wipe out humanity, to close the passage with a note about one man receiving grace, we should read this as anticipating that the Lord is going to spare this one man from judgment. Thus, receiving grace from Yahweh, finding favor in the eyes of Yahweh, hints at Yahweh's intent to save Noah from the judgment that Noah deserves. Likewise, for all of us, it's God's grace that saves us from the judgment that we deserve. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul describes all of us as, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That was Noah, a child of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We'll see later in our study of Genesis that human nature doesn't change one bit after the flood. And when only Noah and his family get off the boat, that is to say, right after the only human beings God saved from His judgment get off the boat, the Lord will essentially repeat Genesis 6-5, saying the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
And at that moment, there are only eight human beings for that to apply to. Nevertheless, Paul uses this idiom, children of wrath, which would mean something like children deserving of and destined for God's wrath. Paul is reminding his Christian readers of who we were by nature. It is because of our connection with and descent from Adam that we are deserving of wrath, as well as our own following of the prince of the power of the air. Humanity is doomed. But God. Whereas Moses had said, yet Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh, Paul writes in Ephesians 2.4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God was motivated by his mercy and his great love for us to make us alive together with Christ. This is what we saw last week. God brought us out from under King Death. He united us to the resurrected King Jesus, and we now live forever. But Paul can't carry on without adding that it was also by grace. He wants to say more, and he will say more about how God saved us, but he interrupts his thought. He cuts into his own sentence here, because I suppose he just can't help himself. If we deserved wrath, how do we not get what we deserve? How is it possible that dead sinners do not press on in our dead living all the way to the point of physical and eternal death. Why would God interrupt that process? Grace. God exercised His power to bring destructive judgment against all of humanity and all of the world in the days of Noah. Yet Noah received grace and was preserved alive. God will exercise His power in the future and bring a final destructive judgment against all of humanity when Jesus returns. In the meantime, God exercises His power to bring good into the lives of sinners who deserve only His judgment. That's grace. He makes us alive with Christ. How can He do this and uphold his righteous judgment. How is it right? How is it just? How is it fair that people whose hearts intend only evil continually don't now and won't ever experience the full measure of God's judgment? By the grace of God, Jesus experienced death. The Messiah accomplished redemption for sinners. He saves evil people like you and like me. He gave his life so that sinners like Noah and like you and like me could be counted righteous, could receive a righteous verdict from the divine judge instead of the guilty verdict we all deserve. Once we receive that justification because of his death, because of his resurrection, we still anticipate a final salvation. 
Paul says it like this in Romans 5, 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. We still deserve judgment. And we still will have our day in court, standing before the judgment seat. On that day, those who have believed in Jesus will have no fear of condemnation. We will stand without fear because we have been made to stand by grace. We have been saved by grace and we will be saved by grace on that day. If it's by grace, then that means it's a gift. That means we only need receive it. That means we need only trust the one who is offering the gift. He's done the hard work. He's done the decisive thing that makes all the difference in the universe. Not only do we need not have fear on that day in the future, but we can have confidence approaching him even now. The author of Hebrews utilizes the phrase we saw of Noah in Genesis 6-8 in Hebrews 4-16. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Any time of need. Salvation is by grace from start to finish and everything in between. Believers stand by grace today. We are invited to be strengthened by grace throughout our lives. We are encouraged to grow by grace throughout our lives. We are promised transforming and sustaining grace for every day of our lives. And we are guaranteed that grace will bring us safely home, finally, even with a last court date on the divine calendar. Peter anticipates grace for believers when Jesus returns. And so in 1 Peter 1.13, he writes, Therefore... Preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Is your hope set fully on that grace, when the grace that Jesus will bring to you when he comes? That, my dear friends, is the grace of resurrection Grace to change you, body and soul, forever. Yes, in the meantime, we must be sober-minded. We must engage our minds and the rest of us. Have them renewed and put into practice habits that please the Lord. But all of this, too, is by grace. That doesn't nullify our need to put forth effort in living the Christian life. It only nullifies boasting as though we earned something through our efforts. We do not. I'd like to invite the music team to the stage. God's grace must be sung about. And so we want to respond to what we've heard about God's grace by singing. And we want to sing particularly about the grace that is promised to us in the future, the grace that Jesus will bring to us on that glorious day. So would you stand and sing together as the music team leads us.